Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Good morning. And excuse me, here we go. I think we got it this time. Good morning and happy Father's Day. Um, I, as a father myself, am grateful for And I I think I can speak for most of the dads when I say we're grateful for the families that make us fathers. We're very appreciated today. Um, And we're grateful for the the gifts that remind us of, of how special you are to us, how special we are to you. And I think as I scan, I think I'm seeing some of those gifts um, I will say there's been a diminishing number of ties this morning, uh, the later we've gone, but I, I think I see a couple new ties. Uh, I'm, I imagine there's probably a couple new watches with some gadgets on them, like temperature, maybe some barometric pressure on your watch, so you can just look right, right down there and say, rain's coming. Uh, I don't see from here, but I'm, I'm guessing there's some new socks, some new white tees, out there. And for me, I don't know I don't know what Father's Day gift is best or my favorite. They're really they're all tied. For uh for the golf dads, uh, I am not among you, but I, I have noticed that you guys don't get just one pair of golf socks, you typically get several pairs, right? I I gotta imagine that's just in case you get a hole in one. (laughs) Sorry. I'm so sorry. We we should move along. I know that some of you are probably ready to go uh, get out on the boat, go fishing. Your families are probably giving you a little time to get on the lake today or on the river. And uh, I would just encourage you while you're out there, if you need a little extra spare change, if you're looking to maybe cash in while you're fishing today, make sure you check the riverbanks. Okay, that's the last one. I'm so sorry. Uh, It was the same three, all three services, and they were all, it was bad every time. Um, Okay, so a little little more participation, if I may. Uh, I just, I want to ask, I want to get a sense for, uh, read the room here. How many of you have said recently, I've told you so? Or, Excuse me, let me rephrase that. Because I told you so. That changes things, right? Who said that? Really show hands if you don't mind. Said that recently. Who's ever said that? Who's ever said because I told you so? All right. That wasn't quite every hand, so I'll ask it this way. Who has ever heard because I told you so? Is that all of us? Pretty much covers us, right? As we get to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 will be in verses 1 through six mostly, um, you know that that phrase, because I told you so, whether you received it or whether you said it, it's a quick explanation usually in regard to some kind of instruction or maybe some discipline, right? Why does it have to be this way? Why is my bedtime this time? Why are you saying this to me, mom and dad? Because I said so. Because I told you so. It's when you need, it's when the request to explain has been asked, but you don't have time to give it, right? And sometimes 
you really don't have time to explain it, right? Your child's running out toward the road, stop! Why? Because I said so, stop, right? Or your three-year-old son is running around with scissors, that's hypothetical, that's totally purely hypothetical. Stop, right now, why? Because I told you so. And then later, the explanation, right? It's dangerous to run around with sharp scissors. It's dangerous to run toward the road. You're not looking both ways, right? Sometimes it's a matter of life and death. Sometimes it's because we just don't, we're tired of explaining things, but sometimes it's a matter of life and death. There's dire circumstances because I told you so. In Corinthians, the book, the first 14 chapters, could be a lot of stop it right now. Change what you're doing because I said so. But chapter 15 brings us to the why, the explanation, the at the end of time out, when you sit on the edge of the bed and say, listen, this is why it's that way. So let's read that. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 6. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says that now, in chapter 15, now that we've gotten through the first 14 here in chapter 15, now I would remind you of the gospel. The gospel that's revealed in Scripture. The gospel that we believe. This, this passage reminds us of the gospel. And it reminds us of three key truths about the gospel that we'll explore this morning. Three key truths that tell us about the gospel and help us shape the way we view the world. The first we'll see is that we never outgrow the gospel. Then we'll see that the gospel is apparent and ab abundantly explained through, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout the scriptures. And then we'll, finally we'll see that we must guard against counterfeit gospels. And I'm very fortunate, very blessed this morning to be able to, to be the first in a in a sermon series, a sort of a, an introduction of, uh, of what we'll be doing in the summer, what Chris will be teaching uh, in, a, in a series he's calling uh, Worship and Worldview, the Intersection of Church and Culture. I think that's what it's titled. If it's not titled, you can hold that against me. But we're going to call this like a, like a prelude or a preface or maybe an episode zero of that as we kind of explore a little bit about how this gospel shapes our worldview. But we we're in the book of Corinthians, and we've talked about the context a little, but just to, to set the stage a little further, the first 14 chapters of Corinthians could be summarized as, y'all better get right before you get left. The Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians were, were having a tough time 
following Jesus, and Paul's telling them about it. If you go back and read, there's a whole lot of do not do this, and occasional instead do this, but a whole lot of stop it right now. This is not the way to do it. Until we get to chapter 15, now I would remind you of the gospel. But it's important to know who is being reminded of the gospel in chapter 15. So back in chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 2, Paul says that this letter is written to the church, who is the church that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, who, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Every word of this book, this letter of Scripture, every word is written and addressed to the church, to the saints. To the saints. You think of that word saint, and you think of maybe like a super awesome person, right? Like, that person's a saint. Well, if you believe in Jesus, that person is you. You are a saint. The word in Greek is hagios. It means consecrated, set apart, made holy. When we believe in Jesus, we're made saints. We're called saints by God, set apart, holy, consecrated. And Paul says to the Corinthians, before he's going to tell them, stop it. Y'all get right, or you get left. Before he says that, he says, this letter is addressed to you, the church, the saints. Now, how could they possibly be saints? How could they be holy, consecrated, set apart? Well, it's not their own doing. That's why here in chapter 15, Paul reminds them of the gospel. The gospel, he says that I preach to you. You see him preaching the gospel in the city of Corinth in chapter 18, the book of Acts. Paul's making tents as his day job, like tents, like REI. And by night, by evening, on the weekends, he's preaching in the synagogues. And if he's not preaching in the synagogues, he's preaching to the Greeks. He's preaching the gospel. And then, eventually, people believe the gospel, and they're baptized. This is the beginning of the church in Corinth, the saints who are in Corinth, who he's going to later address. But then things go bad. There's some persecution. Paul's got to, got to run out of town, maybe a little sooner than he wanted to. And just 18 months, maybe two years later, he's writing this letter. This letter that's 14 chapters of, stop it, because I told you so. Stop doing that. Do this instead. What are you guys thinking? What's going on here? How could it be this bad? And you and I might ask, how could it get that bad in such a short time? And it could be that maybe Paul didn't get to make all the disciples he wanted to make or raise up the leaders he had hoped to do because he had to leave soon. Who, who knows? The point is, things have gone bad in Corinth, in the church. But I would remind you of the gospel. When it comes time for them to change their ways, Paul says, 
I got to remind you first of the gospel, the thing that I preached to you, the thing that I preached to you of first importance, because we never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow it. Paul says, I'm reminding you of this gospel that you've received, that you believed, by which you stand. This gospel that you'll hold to, that you'll hold fast to, this gospel that, that you're being saved by. i got to remind you of this gospel, why the gospel is powerful. Like we read earlier, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation, for rescue. What is the gospel? What makes it so powerful? As you probably know, the gospel, that word gospel literally means good news. You think about good news versus bad news. Good news is better than bad news, right? But how could good news save you? Well, it's all about how that good news is received. Imagine we're together on a ship and something happens to that ship. It crashes. We're in a shipwreck in the middle of the ocean, floating on pieces of driftwood and debris from a shipwreck. That's pretty scary already. But imagine we're surrounded by sharks, a little scarier, in a hurricane. Okay, so we're pretty hopeless, right? We're clinging to our driftwood. We're floating in a shipwreck. Different pieces of driftwood, probably, because it would get too heavy. We saw that in the movie Titanic. Um, uh, so imagine you're on this driftwood, a boat maybe, or a, sorry, a, a door of a boat, all right? And you happen to see a copy of the paper. It's the Wilkes Journal Patriot on your piece of driftwood. And you've got nothing better to do floating out in the ocean, and you want to take your mind off the sharks and the hurricane. And so you're going to read the Journal Patriot. You're going to read the JP while you're floating on driftwood in the ocean. I, I know you got to suspend disbelief. I know that you're poking holes in the plot because you're like, that, that paper would be too wet. Wet paper doesn't work. We use it for our dogs, right? Like, we know, you know wet paper is going to fall apart. Suspend disbelief with me for a moment. Let's pretend like maybe you're in the eye of a hurricane. Still the sharks, though. All right, so you're reading the JP, okay? And you come across a story about the Coast Guard. Now that's pretty relevant, right? So you're paying attention. You're, you're actually going to read this one word for word. We're not skimming. We're going to get in here. What, what is new about the Coast Guard? And you learn that the Coast Guard has new helicopters that are fitted with a special kind of radar. I know, that's not good science, but it's fitted with a special kind of radar that can identify people who are floating on driftwood in the ocean in a hurricane surrounded by sharks. Well, that's really helpful. That's pretty good news, right? You can't argue that that's good news, right? No one's going to argue, right? That's great. You can, I guess you can if you want. Okay, good. We're on the same page. That's good. Same page, because that's good news. But it's not good news that saves you, right? I mean, it's good news. It's going to give you a little hope. Maybe I'll get rescued, but it's not good news that saves. But imagine, okay, Journal Patriot fell into the ocean with the rest of the boat. All right, you're still floating on your piece of driftwood, a door, if you will, and you hear a helicopter up above. We're in the eye of the hurricane, so you can hear the helicopter, blades whirring above you, and over the loudspeaker of the helicopter, the pilot says, hey there, 
don't know what a pilot would say. Hey there, bud. Uh, I'm with the Coast Guard. We have these new special helicopters. We were identified. We were able to identify your precise location because of this new. This is me reading into a megaphone. If that wasn't clear, because of this new radar and stuff, we were able to pinpoint your precise location. Well, that's good news, right? And hey, buddy, stay right there. Don't move. Don't do anything. Wait for the guardsmen to come down out of the helicopter, hook up the harness, and pull you up into the helicopter. Well, that's really good news, and that's good news that has the power to save, right? That's good news that takes you out of your bad situation and puts you in a better situation. That is the point at which the gospel came to those of us who believed. When we were helpless to change our station, to change anything about our situation, when we were absolutely at our worst and at our most hopeless, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for 14 chapters, Paul has reminded the Corinthians of their behavior. He's reminded them of everything, a lot of things that they've done wrong in the context of church, how they're hurting each other, how they're hurting themselves, how they're hurting those outside of the church. He's reminded them of, of all these things and all these ways that they can't measure up. But by chapter 15, he reminds them of the gospel, the gospel that you received, the gospel in which you stand, the gospel by which you are being saved. And we're all like those Corinthians. Romans 1, through 23 says, Claiming to be wise, they, you could replace they with we, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, God's explaining how at creation he created this, this beautiful world. He created us to enjoy this beautiful world. He created us to enjoy himself in this beautiful world. But we would rather worship the things he created than worship him. We would rather chase our own ambition, give our, our affection and our love to something other than God. And God told us, if we disobey, if we turn away from him, we're going to be separated from him and separated from everything good. And you fast forward a, a few thousand years and you can see, you can see that we're in a world that doesn't view God properly. We're in a world that is separated from him. Most evidenced by our, our real news. When we open the Journal Patriot or we turn on the news on TV and we see war, violence. We're to, our world is perpetually at war. And it started right after creation. God had made the Garden of Eden a place of peace Shalom was the word, meaning everything was right, everything was good. We were at unity with each other and God. But then after the garden, the very next chapter, a man murders his own brother. And from that point on, we've been at war. 
nations seeing a patch of grass that they'd like to have and saying, nothing will stop us till we get that patch of grass. And then another nation fights and then everybody's fighting. And next thing you know, thousands upon thousands of years later, here we are still at war. But it's not just nation versus nation, right? You see it on the playground, on the swing set. Kids line up. It's my turn. Let me go. It's not fair. I deserve to be on the swings. They've been on the swing for 30 seconds. It's my turn, right? Everybody lines up at the swing set, but the slide is wide open. And nobody's on the monkey bars. And monkey bars are making a comeback. But nobody's doing that. Nobody's on the climbing wall. And then somebody slips off onto the slide, right? And they get a couple, couple rounds on the slide. Smart kid, right? But then next thing you know, here come all everybody else. Now we're fighting for the slide or the merry-go-round, right? And it doesn't stop at the playground. Eventually you're teenagers and you're being told you got to apply for and you got to fight for these scholarships so you can get into your competitive college. And you know in the back of your mind, if I write this really awesome scholarship essay or if ChatGPT writes this really awesome scholarship essay for me and I don't get caught, then maybe, just maybe, I'm going to beat out everybody else and I'm going to get $1,000 to pay my $15,000 a semester tuition, right? And you fight to, to then get into the college with your $1,000 scholarship and, and then you, you fight to, to finish college and get the attention of, of somebody who might give you an internship so that you can then fight for a position for a job. And you guys have been there. Hey, how many, how many candidates are applying for this job, right? Basically, how many people am I at war with for this position? And then you get the position. But it doesn't stop there. Now you're fighting for promotions. You're fighting with your boss. You're fighting to save up enough pennies so that you can retire and play golf and get a hole-in-one with your socks, right? We're always at war. Some of us, some of us have experienced war and violence at way too young an age from people that shouldn't have been that way to us. But most of all, we're at war with God. We're at war with God saying that my way is better than your way. But I would remind you of the gospel that I preach to you the gospel that I delivered to you of first importance, the gospel of peace, the gospel that Colossians 1.22 says reconciles us with God. That word reconcile means to make at peace, to call a ceasefire, a ceasefire that you and I would have never called on our own, but God gave us the gospel as a ceasefire, as a reconciliation to the war that we're at with him and made peace with us, I would remind you of the gospel, the gospel that you never outgrow, the gospel that you never outgrow that's spoken of so often in Scripture. The gospel is throughout these Scriptures. It's not just here in the New Testament. It's not just here in the book of Corinthians. It's all over the Old Testament. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says scriptures. He's talking about the ones that are already written, not the ones that are yet being written. He's talking about the ones that we already had that have been circulated for years, even before Jesus came. They spoke of the gospel. How could that be? Jesus wasn't here on earth yet, but they speak of a Jesus who's coming. 
Psalm 22 tells the story of crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion had ever been invented. Why? Because Jesus would be crucified. And when we got to when Jesus was crucified, we said, oh, that's what the Psalms were about. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Another description of crucifixion before crucifixion ever happened. Of the suffering servant who would die for our sins. And yet those passages, both of them speak of resurrection as well. Because it wasn't just Christ dying. It was spoken of in accordance with the scriptures. Is that he would be raised as well in accordance with the scriptures. And you have the story of Jonah a famous one. Jonah, who was called to preach the gospel to the city of Nineveh, he runs from God. He ends up in the ocean. He's swallowed by a fish. He's in the belly of the fish for three days. He's spat out onto dry land, at which point he goes to preach the gospel to Nineveh. And Jesus said, that is your sign of what Jesus will do. That the Christ would die for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he'd be buried. He would be raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Jesus said, like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, he'll be in the belly of the earth. He was speaking of the future. And he was in the belly of the earth for three days. But then that stone was rolled away and Jesus walked out of the grave on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Just like it was foretold in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and the story of Jonah being a foreshadowing of it. But Paul's like, I'm not going to stop there. It's in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures testifies to this. But now the, the scripture that's being written in the New Testament at the time Paul's writing this, he's saying, listen, it's not just what's going to happen. It's what's already happened. And if it's what's already happened, that means there are eyewitnesses. And Paul says, when Jesus rose in accordance with the scriptures, he appeared to Cephas. Peter, right? He appears to the other 12. He appears to 500 people at once, by the way, who are, as of the time this was being written, still alive. You can go chat with them. You can ask them if they saw the risen Jesus. And if not them, then James. And if not James, Paul says, then me, as the one untimely born. And I didn't deserve it, Paul says, because I, I persecuted the church, and yet Jesus appeared to me. You can ask me, you can ask Peter, you can ask the 12, you can ask the 500 other people. Because they all witnessed that Jesus rose from the grave. Because if Jesus rose from the grave, that means when he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that it worked. And we can be rescued because he walked out of the grave. It's important, Paul's saying, that you know that he really raised. you got to know it, Paul's saying. And i got to remind you of it. got to remind you of this gospel. You never outgrow it. It's all over the scriptures. It was witnessed by eyewitnesses. What other religion has gone through such pain, staking work to show us that it's real? Most of the time, you got to trust some guy who found some golden tablets in a, behind a tree or something, right? But Paul's like, you can talk to this person, you can talk to this person. I got a whole list of names. I'm not going to write it all in this letter, but I got a whole list of names for you. If you want to talk to some people who saw that Jesus is alive. But even more than that, 
The scriptures that God wrote himself through human hands show it. And by the way, instead of just one guy, there's 30 plus people involved in the putting together of the scriptures that all tell the message of the gospel. So I got to remind you of it, Paul says. And finally, Paul says, in the midst of all this, or this passage at least reminds us that we have to guard against counterfeits to the gospel. We got to guard against counterfeit gospels. He goes on in verse 12 to say, Now, Christ, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember our audience. Our audience is the church at Corinth. Our audience is the saints, the hagios, the consecrated, the set apart, the holy. Amongst this group, Paul has caught wind that some people are questioning whether resurrection is real, whether it can happen, and whether it matters. And Paul, of course, immediately tells us, yeah, it matters. If there's no resurrection, then, there could, then Jesus didn't raise. He tells us it matters. But the question is coming from within. The question is coming from the Corinthian Christians. How do we know resurrection's real? How do we know Jesus resurrected? How do we know it matters? Essentially, a counterfeit gospel, a fake one, a false one one that's not real, one that doesn't have the power to save because if there is no resurrection, there is no power to save. So this counterfeit gospel, we might call it Gnosticism, it's written about in many of the New Testament letters. It questions whether it matters if Jesus was real, if he was fake. What really matters is the material, what's in front of you. And if something happens beyond, the, you know, beyond this life, then okay, we're not really concerned about it. What's most important is that we live the best life we can, the most moral life we can, and we see what happens in the end. Paul's like, that's, that's not the real gospel. That's a counterfeit. Well, good, we don't have counterfeit gospels now. Of course, that's not true. Our greatest enemy is not from without the church. It's from within where the counterfeit Gospels creep in. They sound really close to the real thing, but they're not quite it. And if they're not quite it, they don't have the power to save. One such counterfeit Gospel is uh, it's known as moralistic therapeutic deism, which is two big words and one smaller word, but they're all multiple syllables. So for me, i got to break that down a little bit. Moralistic is what it sounds like being a good person, doing the best you can. Therapeutic, it feels good to do the best you can. It feels better. We feel at peace. Deism, you may remember that term from history class, rose in popularity uh, with the Enlightenment. It's very similar to what we described as Gnosticism. Deism's God is a, a God who maybe created some things, encourages you to be moral, maybe occasionally dips his toe into the waters of humanity, but mostly is uninvolved, but wants you to be as good as possible. So the reason 
we have this term moralistic therapeutic deism. It was invented by Christian Smith, who wrote the book Soul Searching, which was based on a study that has some details that would probably bore you. It was in 2005, and it was a study of teenagers, and the idea was to get the and a sense of the prevailing religion of teenagers. And what they found in two, the 2000s was the, the prevailing religion of teenagers was like this moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, it's a religion of, uh, it's centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It doesn't involve repentance from sin or keeping the Sabbath or living as a servant of sovereign divinity. And it's God, the God of moralistic therapeutic deism, is a, is a God who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's personal affairs. So, who cares? It's not like we have a moralistic, the therapeutic, deistic, Baptist church somewhere in Wilkes, right? That wouldn't happen here. Nobody's ever heard that. Nobody's ever heard that preached, right? But that's just the thing. These teenagers in the 2000s picked it up in churches like ours and like every other church in our community, not that we would pick on our own here. They picked it up regardless of the fact that they grew up in churches where the truth was preached, where the gospel was preached. And okay, that was 2005, though. Who cares? Like, that's 20 years old. Who cares about that? Well, those teenagers are adults. And they've been studied, and they've been researched, and they've been surveyed again. And they maintain the same moralistic, therapeutic deism, the same apathetic, well, I like God, and I want to be good, and I want to do good things, and I hope I get to heaven if I do good things. Albert Moeller says that all this means is that teenagers have been listening carefully. They've been observing their parents and the larger culture with diligence and insight, they understand just how little their parents really believe and just how much many of their churches and Christian institutions have accommodated themselves to the dominant culture. In other words, this thing rose from within, this counterfeit, this fake, this false one, rose from within despite participation with the church. It's not atheism. It's not unbelief that threatens that leads us down the path of the Corinthians. It's apathy. It's not caring. It's, it's when it looks like it doesn't matter, and we communicate that to the next generation, who communicates that to the next generation. Counterfeits get in when we forget the gospel, when we forget why we need the gospel in the first place, when we forget that the God who when we forget the God who wrote the gospel into history, when we forget the God who demonstrated his love, the greatest love through this gospel, when we forget the Christ who secured the promise of the gospel with the scars on his back and the nails on his hands and se secured it as his lungs crushed the breath or his diaphragm crushed the breath out of his lungs. And with those last breaths, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When we forget that he said that, when we forget that with his last breath he said, it is finished. When he said it is finished, the veil separating God and man was torn in two from top to bottom. When we forget that Jesus triumphantly walked out of the grave 
and appeared to lots of people when he did it, when we, when we forget that our kids need the gospel, even if they're not as wild as we were, when we forget that the gospel is for good kids, is for church kids, is for kids who grew up here every Sunday and Wednesday. They need the gospel too. Because until they have the gospel, they're separated from God. And when we forget that being in this building on Sundays and Wednesdays, if not this building, a building like it, and with a group like it, when we forget that being in this building is not the same as believing the gospel, counterfeits can creep in. And Paul says, remember the gospel. Remember that it's what saved you and is saving you. Remember this good news, Corinthians. Remember the gospel. You'll never change, but you have been changed by it. Remember it and pass it on. And when we remember the gospel, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Today, I implore you, Father's Day, remember the gospel and remember it for your children and your grandchildren. Remember the gospel for your nieces and nephews, for your friends and co-workers. Remember the gospel for them and remember it to them. And as we sing to close, I would invite you, if you've not believed the gospel, I'd invite you to join me. And I would love to walk through what belief in the gospel means for you, but you don't need me. You can believe it right where you are. Believe this gospel that saves. Remember it. And if you want to join us and join this church as this church believes the gospel, and this church endeavors to take the gospel to the neighbors, to our neighbors and the nations, I'd love to talk to you about that, but most of all, I implore you to sing and enjoy and remember this gospel and remember it for those generations to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this gospel. Thank you for this time where we get to talk about it. Thank you for this time where we get to worship you because of the gospel and because you rescued us. Thank you for it and help us identify the things that aren't the gospel so that we can remember the gospel better for generations to come. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.